Blog Talk Radio. Hey everybody, this is Tristan Nunez, driver of the 7-0 Skyactiv Mazda prototype, and you're listening to Thursday Night Thunder on the Speedway Digest Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the June 11th edition of Speedway Digest Thursday Night Thunder, the most hardcore motorsports program on the internet. This episode 182 of the series. I'm your host, Adam Jason Sinclair, and on tonight's program, Michael Mullally Capallo and myself will be recapping the past three months of racing. Not a heck of a lot of recapping to do, but we'll get around to it. Previewing up on the action and discussing whatever other topics pop into the conversation. First off, let me welcome everyone back from our COVID-19 exile. For the past three months, Speedway Digest Thursday Night Thunder, as well as most of the Speedway Digest radio network, Indeed, most of the motorsport world in general has been trapped in a world of self-isolation, fear, and uncertainty. Only recently has the light started to shine from the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, it's not an oncoming train. There have been a couple of changes in the program since our last airing. You may have noticed the new last name of our co-host, as she and her fiancé decided to hell with the virus and to get married anyway. We wish them all the luck in the world, and we'll hear a little more about that later in the program. Our first guest this, this evening is Optimum Batteries eCare Manager, Jim McElvain. I hope I'm getting that right. Not only does Jim know the Drive Optimum Series and all of its competitors, he also has a passion for the product. Jim McElvain has been serving as an online resource for technical questions about Optima Batteries since 2009. He uses a wide variety of social media outlets, including more than 1,300 different message boards, as well as hundreds of Facebook groups, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, Tumblr, and just about every other channel out there to promote Optima batteries. He also oversees Optima's e-commerce efforts and some digital aspects of customer service. Jim's professional career started out in the NBA as a professional basketball player, following his playing Days he returned back to his automotive passions, beginning with writing articles and shooting photos for a few different magazine outlets. That eventually led to his career with Optima, where he has been a driving force of the brand in the racing series ever since. Jim spent 13 seasons as the color analyst for the Market Basketball Radio Network. Jim has also done basketball-related TV work in the past and would entertain opportunities in the future. We're now very pleased to welcome our first guest in three months, Mr. Jim McElvain, to the program. Wow. I can't believe I'm your first guest in three months. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's been a, uh, been a long time since we had the show. We sort of stopped production there in early March, and we're very happy to get back going again today. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'm happy to be here. First off, can you tell us a little bit more about Optima batteries, specifically why they're a better choice for your automobile than the other ones on the market today? Well, Optima batteries are a lead-acid battery, um, but they are an absorbed glass mat lead-acid battery in a, a six-pack style uh, shape, which is unique to our products. They kind of look like you know, like a six-pack of beer or soda pop. Um, instead of the electrolyte uh, or the acid floating around in between the, the positive and negative lead plates, the acid is absorbed into fiberglass matting that, that, that's then kind of rolled up and uh, inserted under compression into our, our six-pack case. Uh, so it provides an extreme amount of vibration resistance, and it also um, does a great job in terms of uh, cycling and durability because we use 99.99% pure virgin lead 
where most car batteries on the road use recycled lead, which doesn't perform as well or last as long. And uh, a lot of newer vehicles uh, utilize what's called start-stop technology. So the, the vehicle, when it comes to a stop at a stoplight, the engine turns off kind of like a golf cart would. And then when you press the accelerator, the engine starts up again. So the result is that a lot of these vehicles have to start the engine thousands and thousands of more times. Uh, and it's very hard on a traditional flooded lead-acid battery. So uh, the absorbed glass mat batteries and the optimal batteries actually do a fantastic job in those applications. I was contacted a few weeks ago about covering the uh, Drive Optima series. I know that they're, they have their show on MAV-TV. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Drive Optima series is? Absolutely. Um, we started it in 2014, uh, but even before that, we had an event at the SEMA show every year called the Optima Ultimate Street Car Invitational. And that came about because my boss, Cam Douglas, and, and the, uh, the series organizer, Jimmy Day, looked at all the vehicles at the SEMA show and said, they look fantastic, but can you actually take them out and enjoy them on the street and drive them around and have fun with them at a racetrack? And after years of asking that question between themselves, they decided to do something about it. They rented out, uh, at the time, they rented out uh, Spring Mountain Motorsports Ranch, and they asked people with show cars at the show, would you be willing to take your car to the track this weekend and show us what it can do on the track? And... 2008 they invited probably less than 30 cars and i would say less than half of those actually finished the weekend uh, but they had everybody had a great time to the point that almost immediately people started building cars for it for the SEMA show for the following year so from 2008 through 2013 uh it was an invitation only event um we, we plucked some cars from some various events around the country open road races uh, but they're all street cars, and they're street legal to be driven on public roads. And actually, one of the segments of the event is the Lucas Oil Road Rally, where they are driven on public roads. But we also do an autocross, uh, a time segment on a road course, something called the Power Stop Brake Speed Stop Challenge, which is kind of an acceleration and braking contest. And then the Lingenfelter uh, Performance Design and Engineering Challenge is kind of like an abbreviated car show where you have uh, several minutes to present your car to a group of judges and then they evaluate it and you get penalized if you're missing things like a functional horn um, if if your windows don't roll up and down if you're missing interior pieces you have to have full full interior seats carpet uh, if you don't have a air conditioning hvac system if you don't have a functioning radio so really it, it you know it tries to weed out the the race cars with license plates and it's just it's shocking to me to see the lengths that people have gone to to compete in our series and be competitive in our series to the point that now when we have the cars in Optima Alley and you look up and down the rows and, and you might see a Nissan um, GTR, you could see a Dodge Viper, Corvette, Camaro, Mustang, uh, any of those cars, not only is, is it a fantastic SEMA show car, maybe what one of the best examples you'll see at the entire SEMA show from the quality of the paint to the sound system inside, uh, but the car will perform better than anything else at the show on the racetrack the following weekend, and it'll, it'll be asked to do that. So it's really kind of backing the automotive aftermarket in every regard from the appearance and the sound and the look to the performance. 
You mentioned the, you touched on the autocross a little bit. Now, what sort of competition is the uh, the Drive Auto X series? I know I've seen a teeny bit about that. We also uh, we have another series called Drive Auto X, and uh, that is a series that's based mainly east of the Mississippi River. The uh, Drive Optima series takes place all around the country. We've already run at Willow Springs in California, Las Vegas Motor Speedway. We'll be at Pike Peak International Raceway next month in Atlanta Motor Speedway. Uh, Road America, NCM, and Nolan Motorsports Park. But Drive Auto X is east, more east coast. I wouldn't say east coast based, but easterly based. Uh, UMI Motorsports Park is the first event. And then there's a couple other tracks. And it's mainly like Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, in that area. And, and for anybody who's ever autocrossed with SCCA or a club weekend, uh, this event is very different. You don't have to we call it shagging cones. You don't have to work the course and pick up cones and set them back up after somebody else knocks them down. All you do is you show up in your car and you drive. And a typical club racing weekend, you might get five or six autocross runs on, a, on maybe a 25 or 30 second course. And we tend to have really big courses and drive auto X where some of the fast cars will struggle to get under a minute. It's so big. And it's usually like a large tarmac, like a, like an airstrip. And we have people who come in and work the course. So all you do is drive your car and have fun. And it's not uncommon for people to run in a, in a weekend 15 to 20 times in their car where they'd see a fraction of that in a typical autocross event. And what advice do you have for people who are trying to get back on the road after sitting for having a car sit around for a long time during their recent quarantine periods? Well, I've seen a lot of advice lately uh from a lot of different places and, and a lot of it's really terrible advice um i've, I've seen people to start the car up once a week if they haven't been driving their car and and the, the unfortunate side of that is the energy that a vehicle consumes while it's sitting parked and then while it's starting will probably not be replaced by the vehicle's charging system the alternator in a short period of time even if you idle your car in the driveway for 15 minutes or drive around the block, um, the alternator and, and my friends at Power Stop Alternate, or I'm sorry, Power Master Alternators will tell you every day of the week and twice on Sunday, alternators are designed to maintain voltage in batteries that are nearly char- fully charged. Whereas uh, if your battery is deeply discharged, you shouldn't use an alternator to try to charge it. You should use a battery charger. So if, if stuck and you need to get your car started, you know, I have a set of jumper cables in, in my vehicles, and it's it's great for an emergency situation, but I treat it like a one-gallon can of gas. If, if your car needs gas and you put a gallon in, your next stop is probably going to be a gas station. So if you need to jumpstart your car to get it started, your next stop should be somewhere with a battery charger to fully recharge your battery. Because if, if you don't do that, you'll put enough current into the battery to get the car started the one time. Um, but then you, if it gets you to work, You'll come out of work at the end of an eight-hour or ten-hour shift, and your battery will be dead again. You'll need another jump start. So you get into the cycle of dead batteries and jump starts until either the battery needs to be replaced, which is expensive, or the alternator, which is really expensive, or both, which is even more expensive. So um, the best advice I can give to people is charge your battery with a battery charger. And every auto parts store in the country sells battery chargers. You don't need super fancy ones. We sell super fancy ones that are great. They charge any kind of 12-volt lead-acid battery or AGM battery, but uh, just about any battery charger will do. And people forget 
they they have all kinds of accessories. Some some vehicles have internet access now. Some allow all the GM vehicles have Earnstar that works all the time, even when your vehicle is parked, even when the key is not in the car, and it's always operating. And, and anybody who's ever watched their cell phone battery die when when they're in a in a building that doesn't have you know, they, they kind of amp up the battery to kick up the power to try to get a signal somehow. The vehicles do the same thing when you park them in the garage and they have on star or something like that. So uh, keeping a battery charge is of paramount importance if, if you need it on a regular basis. And even, even if you are, if your trips are five, ten-minute trips, uh, over time you're going to discharge your battery. And we, we certainly want people's battery business, but not before we need to get it. So um, many of the batteries that come back to us and, and a lot of other battery retailers and companies uh, for warranty replacement are just discharged. All they need is a charge from a battery charge, a set of jumper cables or a jump box. And uh, that'll, that'll really maximize battery performance when you keep battery voltage properly maintained. and it'll, it'll maximize battery lifespan. Well, I'd like to throw you out to my co-host, Michael Morali, who has a couple of questions for you as well. Sure. So my first question, what is your favorite racing series that you follow? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I first started following motorsports, I followed the Badger Midgets, uh, which ran, obviously, in, in the state of Wisconsin, Sun Prairie, and, and places like that. And that's where guys like Jeff Gordon cut their teeth in motorsports, racing midgets, and then uh, before he moved on to NASCAR, and, um, that was circle track racing. I kind of started following NASCAR from that point, and I was a huge, huge Mark Martin fan. And I'd go to races at Michigan, at Bristol. Um, obviously, the Midwest tracks were easier to get to, so I had season tickets to Chicago and I watched the Busta National Series run for Milwaukee Mile. But um, I, I think I started to drift away from NASCAR when – uh, the Lumina came in and it went from a rear wheel drive V8 Monte Carlo to a front wheel drive V6. And then the Ford Taurus came in, which wasn't even a two door and Dale Earnhardt died. And, and I didn't like Dale Earnhardt, but I loved to cheer against him. I was one of those people cause I was a Mark Martin fan. Um, and so I, I kind of started to fall away from it. Um, I had, I had to get a seating license at Chicagoland Speedway. So they forced me to buy tickets to all the races, even though I really only wanted to see the NASCAR races. And I had season ticket. Well, I had uh, Bush grand national tickets at the Milwaukee mile and they decided to rebuild the grandstands one year. And, and I had a bad experience with the seven tickets that I bought there. And so I gave up those tickets and I started going to road America a lot more. Um, and, and I started following the cars that would run up there. I've never really been an open wheel, um, fan outside of the short dirt tracks and clay ovals because that's where I, I enjoy seeing the action of cars passing each other but um, I did get into the sports car racing a little bit more and I have friends that do it and did it uh, a good friend of mine is Dan Banks who ran the Corvette teams for Pratt and Miller for years and so I followed those guys here and, and when they'd run over at Le Mans and then I ended up being friends with a lot of folks that run vintage cars so some of the old Formula One cars um, some of some of the old Can-Am cars, and 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 I just love the variety of the vintage cars. So lately, I guess I'm I'm a big fan of SVRA, and then obviously Optimal Battery sponsors uh, James Clay and the Bimmer World BMWs that 
sometimes race in what used to be the Pirelli World Challenge Series and, and some of those uh, road race series in, in the new M4 GT4. So I follow those guys, and uh, it's it's kind of been road courses lately for me, and, and it's it's been fun because there's so much variety in the cars that, that run in all these different events, whether it's a, a modern current racing series or something with the vintage cars. And have you ever driven a race car? I don't know if I would call anything that I've ever driven really technically a race car. I'm seven foot one, so it creates a problem for me to just fit into race cars. Um, I've squeezed into a, an old Winston Cup car and ridden in the passenger seat as, as the professional driver took it around Bristol Motor Speedway, and it was phenomenal. And I would challenge anybody who doesn't think motorsports is an athletic endeavor to put on a full driver's suit and a helmet and get into a NASCAR Nextel Cup car and just sit in the passenger seat for a race at Bristol in 90-degree heat and tell me that that's, that's not an athletic endeavor. Because I, I would have lost my lunch if I had anything to eat that day for lunch. It was su- such an intense experience. Um, I do own a 1969 Mercury Cyclone that we built specifically to compete in the uh, Drive Optima series. So I've run that car on the racetrack in the series. But um, that's a streetcar series, and, and none of the, the – if you want to call it racing, it's really considered wheel-to-wheel because we don't want anybody to bought up their streetcar. So it's basically timed events on the road course, timed events on the autocross. And when you do pass people, it's not like you're passing them for position or fighting to get into the turn. You know, everybody kind of treats it like gentleman racing, and they let the guy go by if he's a faster car. And what is your dream car? I think the Cyclone's my dream car. And, uh, I actually always wanted a General Lee, a, a, a 69 Dodge Charger growing up. I'd watched the Dukes of Hazard like a lot of Gen X people my age. And when I got old enough to afford to be able to go out and buy one, I realized that the Mopars were really expensive compared to the other cars from that era. And I just, all, all the General Lees were, that were still floating around that were used in the filming were kind of banged up and weren't treated very well. And so... I decided to get the opposite of the General Lee and I was going to call it the General Grant. Um, and I just looked at the traditional motorsports rivalries. If it's Ford versus Chevy, and we're really basically talking about cars that competed in NASCAR, then it, then it would be Mercury versus Dodge. So I would get a Mercury. And what was competing against those cars in the late 60s was the, was the Mercury Cyclone. So then I wanted to find a Mercury Cyclone and it had to be a 68 or 69 with the fastback. And it took me about 15 years to find one that wasn't numbers matching, that I could do whatever I wanted to. And finally, a friend of mine, Jeff Schwartz from Schwartz Performance in Crystal Lake, Illinois, tracked one down a transmission shop. Uh, I bought the car, and then Randy Johnson at DNZ Customs in Kewaskum, Wisconsin, spent about a year and a half building it for me. It was at the SEMA show twice, and... It's actually featured in the January 2020 issue of Hot Rod Magazine. It's kind of a, I wouldn't say a dream come true, but it's it's the last feather in the cap for my builder who's had his cars featured in just about every magazine that was out there until they all kind of went away, actually, in February of this year. But uh, he always wanted to get into Hot Rod Magazine, and, and the Cyclone made it in, so I was I was really happy for him. Awesome. Well, we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program this evening. It was, it was very informative to hear from you, and it sounds like you've had a 
a lifelong passion for motorsports. So I'm kind of interested to see what you have what you have in the future. I know that the uh, they mentioned that you'd be willing to provide additional coverage for us for the Drive Optima and as well as the Drive Auto X series for SpeedwayDigest.com in the future. So that'll be pretty cool to, to see what you have to say about that. Yeah, we'll make sure you guys get some unique content. And actually, I just got off a call before your show started with uh, Vaughn Gittin Jr. and uh, an Ultra 4 driver we sponsor, Lauren Healy. And uh, we're talking about taking those guys to the Pikes Peak Hill Climb and also the Sand Hills Open Road Challenge in, in uh, the middle of nowhere in, in Arnold, Nebraska in August. So there's a lot on the plate as everybody's trying to catch up just like uh, NASCAR is with postponing races, trying to cram everything into the last few months of the summer. Well, it sounds like it'll be, a, it'll be an, quite an interesting year in the world of more sports this year, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it come, all plays out in the end. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. You too. Once again, that was Jim McElvain, who will be providing, as I say, a little bit more information about the series for SpeedwayDigest.com in the future. He'll probably be on the program again a few more times as well this year, and that'll be pretty awesome to hear from that. Hopefully, we'll have the chance to, to talk with him in the future, uh, possibly in person, when the sports car racing resumes with fans in the stands, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more later in the show. Are you a race car driver, crew chief, pit member, track owner? Maybe you're just a huge fan of the sport. Contact either Michael Malali Capallo or myself and get your spot on the show. After all, you deserve your 15 minutes of fame, and we'd love to hear from you. Our next guest this evening is Jake Griffin. At age three, Jake started racing. Coming from a family of racers, he was quick to fall in love with the sport. Winning 10 track championships and over 200 races by the age of nine, he quickly moved into full-size race cars. Shocking the recent world, being an exceptionally young kid, to be performing at a high level against some of the best drivers in the country, Jake's innate talent was already making him a huge fan favorite. From age nine to 12, Griffin had amassed over 100 feature wins, three track championships, and a ULMA national championship all in full-size 700 to 900 horsepower dirt modified and dirt super late models against the best in the country. Come a few more successful years on dirt tracks, Griffin and his team decided it was time to make the next step to asphalt racing. At age 14 and only his second year of asphalt racing, Jake Griffin not only moves into the NASCAR Whalen All-American Series, but amazingly picks up a phenomenal win in the series and becomes the youngest driver to ever win in a NASCAR-sanctioned event. By just age 16, with many more wins in asphalt late models and modifieds, Jake Griffin makes his first start in the NASCAR Truck Series. While running a part-time schedule in the Truck Series with some very promising runs, Griffin, at age 18, got a great opportunity with one of the best teams of the NASCAR Truck Series at that time, Red Horse Racing. The race was at the famed Eldora Speedway in Rossburg, Ohio. In his first real opportunity, racing for a high-tier team in the NASCAR Truck Series, he did not disappoint. Griffin finished fourth out of the 40 drivers, with NASCAR's toughest racers competing in the event. Fast forward three years after that outstanding race, and you have a 21-year-old driver that is willing to give his all to win races and give his partners and many fans the best showings possible. Jake Griffin is a driver with countless hours behind the wheel of race cars against the best names to ever do it. A driver who, with his heart and true passion for the sport, would go to any lengths to help a fellow competitor out. At just 21 years old, this driver has 18 years of doing whatever it takes to win and whatever it takes to make the most out of every race, partnership, team, and situation. 
Once again, it's great to have Jake Griffin back on the show this evening. He's been on the program before. We've had the chance to talk with him outside of the program about all different sorts of aspects of modern auto racing. So we're very pleased to welcome him back into the Hunt Dome tonight. Hey, Hello, Jake, you how you doing? They got you. Hey, thanks for having me on, so guys. I appreciate it. It's awesome to talk to you again. First off, how did you spend the last few months? Oh, the last few months we've been doing a lot of eye racing. Uh, not a lot of real racing going on until about, I'd say, three weeks ago was our first race of the season. So, yeah, I've been doing a lot of eye racing, practicing, getting in shape, and getting ready for the season. I see that you've been doing a little bit of sprint car racing this year. How did they compare to the full-body trucks that you've been you've had the most experience in recently? Yeah, it is about as much of a 180 turn as you can possibly get from uh, the trucks. So with these things, they have the big wing on top of them. So a big part of the learning curve for me, because I've never driven one before, is just having faith and trust in the wing that it's going to stick in the corner when I go in there. And, uh, yeah, so pretty much complete opposite from what I'm used to, but uh, we're learning every week. And do you prefer dirt or paved tracks? Um, I think it all depends on the weekend and how I do, <laughs> like a lot of people would be. But uh, I think I've definitely had a lot more success on dirt. Um, I still love pavement. Uh, pavement. It, it, it's always gonna. It's always gonna uh, be good to me, and, and I always enjoy doing it when I get the opportunities to. Um, I'm just happy to be where I'm at right now, running what I am. I know that the uh, the NASCAR series returned to action a couple of weeks ago, and they're racing without any, any fans in the stands whatsoever. There's other smaller tracks around the country who are doing the same sort of thing. How do you feel about racing without fans in the stands? Um, I think that they're taking the necessary precautions that they have to. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it isn't probably as exciting for whoever ends up winning the race with no fans in the stands, but us local racers and and other people, um, I think, for the most part, are getting uh, to have the fans in the stands. So, um, I think it'll, I think it'll come to a close soon, as far as them letting the fans in the stands and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'm just glad to see them making the necessary uh, steps to take um, to uh, put this all to an end. And what sort of events are on your schedule for 2020? Uh, my schedule is going to be probably around a 30 to 40 sprint car races this year uh, for Johnstone and Motorsports. And uh, hopefully some more asphalt late model stuff. I'd like to get back in uh, the asphalt late model with Bobby Roos and the team. Adventures in Racing, uh, they've been really good to me lately, and and they've been helping us out a lot. So I, I'd like to get back in them. I don't have anything scheduled. I think maybe uh, we're going to go up to Alaska uh one time this year uh, for adventures in racing. So hopefully we get to go up there and then uh, run the rest of the season in the sprint car. And then, I don't know, maybe if if something comes up, I'd always like to get in the truck again, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I know that they mentioned on the, uh, the last time I saw you in the truck series at Eldora there, they mentioned that you had, you had won the race there in Alaska. How do you like that track? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah. So um, I don't know if, if uh, anybody didn't see the pictures that I posted, I mean, it is just absolutely surreal. Um, it, it's unlike anything you've ever seen with the mountains in the background and, and just the racetrack itself, just so smooth and, and, uh, and really racy. And, uh, the crowd was great. 
I'm actually surprised there's like that big a following for asphalt short track racing uh, in Alaska. But yeah, it, um, it's just an amazing place. And uh, if anybody ever gets the opportunity to go up there, I'd take it in a heartbeat because it it is well worth the trip. Well, let me go ahead and throw you out to my co-host, Michael, who has a couple of questions for you as well. Okay. What has been your most memorable race in your career? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, most memorable race. Well, I think as far as stature goes, it has to be Eldora getting fourth there. Uh, but there's a lot of wins that I that I really cherish. Um, definitely getting the first win. My hometown of Quincy was a huge one for me, and in front of the home, uh, in front of the home crowd, seeing them go crazy in the super late model um, was really special to me. And there's just so many races that it, it is special to me. But I'd say it's either between Eldora and uh, winning at my home track for the first time. And if we were to listen in on your in-car radio. What would be some of the things that we would hear? It it, it all depends on who's who's spotting for me that week. Uh, I I definitely bounce on kind of the vibe in the race car. Uh, if my spotter Bruce Dan's Jr. is up in the up in the stand, it's it's going to be to go and making sure everything's all set to go and and I don't really talk too much when I'm in the car. I I kind of just focus. Um um if we're in a race, I kind of just focus and just uh, focus on hitting my marks and yeah, not a whole lot of chatter for me, but definitely if if I have old, old Bruce Dan Jr. up on the box for me, there'll be a lot of hyping me up and stuff like that. And my final question for you, what is one memory with a fan that you've had that has stuck with you the most? One memory with a fan that I've had. That's a hard one. I've had I've had so many great memories with fans, and and I know I'm not trying to dodge all these questions, but I've just had so many great memories with fans. Um, yeah, I I guess just seeing all of the fans uh, come out to Eldora and 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 get to sign autographs, and almost every year I go out there, it's just really special to me. I can't I can't think of one in particular because they all just mean so much to me and I, and I appreciate every single one of them. Well, like I said, I've been following your career for a while now. I know you've had a you've had some ups and downs, but I'm, a, I'm pretty sure you're going to end up with a uh, with a great future ahead of you, and it'll be it'll be awesome to see you in the truck again, and hopefully in something a little bit more competitive and and something that the uh, that the fans are able to get behind this year and in the future. I appreciate it. Yeah, I hope so, too. That is the goal. Well, thanks again for calling in this evening, and we, we hope you have a great night and a great season. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you. Once again, that's Jake Griffin, who's been competing in the Sprint Series, as well as he's planning some, some asphalt late model events later in the year, and hopefully he'll get back in the Truck Series. He, is a, uh, he has some great fans as he stated, I'm uh, I'm definitely one of them. I think he's a great guy, and he's going to have a great future ahead of him. On Tuesday, NASCAR announced its plans to reintroduce guests at select NASCAR Cup Series races, beginning with the Dixie Vodka 400 at Homestead Miami Speedway, which will be held this weekend, June 14th, on Fox, MRN, and SiriusXM Satellite Radio. 
as well as the Geico 500 at the Hell Vegas Speedway, which is next Sunday, June 21st on Fox, MRN, and Sirius, Sirius XM's NASCAR radio as well. Cars modified event procedures, protocols, and number of attendees have been finalized with guidance from public health officials, medical experts, and local, state, and federal officials. All guests in attendance will be screened before entering, required to wear face coverings, mandated to social distance at six feet, and will not have access to the infield, among other revised operational protocols. NASCAR will continue to adapt and improve its procedures to ensure they are effective and can be scaled to support an increased number of fans in the future. NASCAR will continue its long history of honoring military members by welcoming them as the first guests allowed entrance to a NASCAR Cup Series event since March 8th. Homestead Miami Speedway will invite up to 1,000 South Florida service members as honorary guests for the Dixie Vodka 400, representing the Homestead Air Reserve Base and U.S. Southern Command in Doral. Talladega Super Speedway will allow up to 5,000 guests in the front stretch grandstands towers for the Geico 500. In addition, there will be limited motorhome slash fifth-wheel camping spots available outside the track high atop the Alabama Gang Super Stretch. Tickets are open exclusively on a first-come, first-served basis to fans who purchase tickets or reserved camping for the original scheduled GEICO 500, which was supposed to be held on April 26th, and live within a designated proximity to the track, I believe it's 150 miles. Additional protocols and procedures for guests planning to attend can be found at both the Homestead Miami Speedway as well as the Talladega Super Speedway websites. Over standing by for our next guest, let's go ahead and take a short musical break here and listen to... A song from Ron Pastana and the Pit Crew, if I can find it. Let's see. Let's go ahead and listen to Dirt Track Racing. Yeah. 
Hi, this is Kristen Kenny from Red Bull Global Rallycross, and you're listening to Thursday Night Thunder on the Speedway Digest Radio Network. Our final guest of the evening is Dan Robinson, the general manager of the highly successful Lucas Oil Speedway since 2009. Dan was promoted to Lucas Oil Director of Racing Operations for Lucas Oil Speedway, the Lucas Oil Drag Boat Racing Series, the Lucas Oil MLRA, and the Lucas Oil Pro Pulling League in September of 2018. Racing has been a lifelong passion for Robinson, a Wisconsin native who has overseen the growth of Lucas Oil Speedway in Wheatland, Missouri, into one of the nation's showcase racing operations with an oval dirt track, drag boat racing lake, and off-road facility. Among Robinson's awards are the 2012, 2014, 2015, and 2016 Great Plains Region Auto Racing Promoter of the Year and 2015 Innovator of the Year at the Racetrack Business Conference in Indianapolis. In February 2017, he received the 41st Auto Racing Promoter of the Year Award sponsored by Racing Promotion Monthly and Charlotte Motor Speedway. Robinson's love of racing began as a crew member of a dirt late model team at Wilmot Speedway at the age of 13, before later moving to southwest Missouri and working for five-time NASCAR Weekly Racing Series champion Larry Phillips and son Terry Phillips. He also worked for the Mittler Brothers NASCAR truck team, along with being mentored in track operations by the late Bill Willard at Lebanon I-44 Speedway. Since coming to Lucas Oil Speedway in 2007 and quickly working his way through the ranks, the track has enjoyed unparalleled success at the Dirt Oval and with the addition of the Drag Boat Lake in 2011 and off-road track in 2016. Robinson has presided over a diverse schedule of events at the Dirt Track, including weekly races, the National Televised Show Me 100, Diamond Nationals, and ASCS Jesse Hackett, Daniel McMillan Memorial. Lucas Oil Speedway's signature event, the Show Me 100, was named the 2015 Most Outstanding Short Track Event by Racing Promotion Monthly. We are now happy to welcome Dan Robinson, Director of Operations for Lucas Oil Speedway, to the show. Hello, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on tonight. First off, we'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk with us tonight. Can you let us know... Sorry, are you there? I'm having a little cell phone service. I've had kind of a busy day, and I wasn't able to get uh, to a good lo- as good a location as I had hoped to take part in the call. 
No problem. First off, can you just let us know a little bit more about what your role is with the Lucas Oil Company? Sure. I, uh, as you guys stated, I have been uh, with Lucas Oil Speedway uh, exclusively in, through 2018, and uh, I was promoted to director of racing operations and expanded uh, to oversee our pro bowling league, our drag boat series, some regional late model series, and work with some of our other sponsored series. So I, uh, I kind of work with a lot of different programs now and help oversee them, you know, financially and operationally. And as, as people are starting to return to normal driving after the pandemic, what Lucas Oil products would you recommend to help their engines run smoothly after sitting idle for such a long time? Well, a lot of the, you know, the fuel systems tend to take the most abuse. They sit, the valves get sticky, and the fuel starts to get uh, degraded. So we have three really good fuel treatment options, a high-mileage fuel treatment um, to help just keep those higher, you know, higher mileage engines clean and lubricated. And uh, if, if it's sat for a long time and you haven't uh, taken care of it, we have a deep clean fuel system cleaner. So that'll really kind of get you back going after sitting a while. But we highly recommend using our upper cylinder lubricant injector cleaner every every fill up, and that'll keep you lubed up and ready to go all the time. Keep the gas mileage up and your engine running smooth. And how did the Lucas Oil Speedway earn the nickname the Diamond and Dirt Track? Well, our location is a little unique. We're located in a very rural area, and uh, it was a bean field at one time before the previous owner built a racetrack. It's very much like the Field of Dreams, but when Forrest Lucas and his team put his touch on it and made it the, the nicest facility in the country, it just kind of became known as the Diamond, and uh, that was the nickname, so we just call it the Diamond and Dirt Track. There you go. And I know you have a, a an awful lot on your plate, and you, you supervise a lot of different racing series. How many races do you personally attend each year? I probably attend 70 to 80 events uh, all throughout, starting from January to December, really. I go to indoor events and tractor pulls, drag boats, sprint cars. I, I do a little bit of everything. So every weekend I kind of pick what's the most important thing. Uh, to be at, and a lot of times there's two things that are equally as important I have to choose, but usually about uh, 70, 80 to 90 events. This year's been a little different, of course, but... Yeah. And this next question might be a little tough for you, but I know that of all the series Lucas Oil uh, works with and, and you in particular are involved in, which one's your favorite? And they're all so good. It is a really difficult question. You know, I, I was always a circle track guy, and I love spring cars and late models, and in uh, 2011, we built a drag boat lake, and I grew to love drag boats. And 2016, we built our off-road track, and to see off-road vehicles in person and watch those guys, um, they're unbelievable as well. So I, I, I love the whole spectrum of it. Well, let me go ahead and throw you out to my co-host, Michael, who has some questions for you as well. What does a typical race weekend look like for you? It varies on what series we're at or or what I'm doing, but I typically get there the day before and just make sure uh, logistically everything's in good shape, work with the promoter or the owner of the facility and uh, with our TV crew and our, our series staff and just try to make sure everything's um, on time and organized and ready to go for the fans to come in uh, during the event and make sure that we're all prepared. And, and I, I mostly monitor things throughout the evening. I uh, spend a lot of time in the TV truck to make sure we're getting the right shots and work with our great team of production people on that. And, you know, kind of at the end, we just kind of wrap up and we 
uh, debrief, talk about what we could have done better and what we did great and just learn from it and move on to the next event. And who has been the most memorable driver you have met while doing what you're doing? Man, I've been really spoiled to meet a lot of great people. And, you know, when I was a kid, I looked up to guys like Ken Schrader or Kenny Wallace and some of those guys, and now I know them personally. And, you know, I get to interact with, you know, Sammy Swindell and Kyle Larson and Carl Rennebetter. And because we do so many diverse things, I get to meet a lot of really uh, talented, diverse people. So um, there's no one that stands out, but I'm thankful to be involved with a lot of great people in the sport. And my final question for you, and this one might be a tough one, but what is your favorite racetrack food? You know, I'm just an old – I just like to have a cheeseburger. It doesn't matter what racetrack (laughs) I go to. If I go to the concession stand, I buy a cheeseburger. I I try it at every place I go. So we have great food at Lucas Oil Speedway, some more exotic stuff, but I just love that old cheeseburger. Well, we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. It's uh, it's always interesting to talk to someone who works for the uh, works for the tracks directly, and and we've got an awful lot of responsibility that that is probably one of the most varied roles we've ever had to talk to someone about. So that's that's pretty awesome, and we'd like to thank you again for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Awesome, and have a great rest of the season. I know it's been a an interesting start to the season. Hopefully the, the end of it ends up being a lot better. Yeah, hopefully we do. We're getting rolling now, so I think things will shape up and have a, a great finish. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Have a great night. Thank you. Once again, that was Dan Robinson, who is in charge of the Lucas Oil Speedway, as well as a bunch of different other things for the for the Lucas Oil Company there. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch any of the, the coverage, Lucas Oil different series on Mav TV, you're really missing out. There's always something interesting on there, so be sure to check that out. The administration of North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has ordered the closure of a small stock car track that's allowed large crowds to gather repeatedly for the weekend races over the past few weeks, declaring an imminent hazard for the spread of COVID-19. The order signed by Cooper's Health Secretary says a speedway in, oh gosh, Alamance County, 65 miles 105 kilometers northwest of, oh, Lord, Ray Rayway is violating the governor's executive order limiting outside mass assemblies to 25 people. Media outlets, including some that I follow directly, have reported crowds at the speedway exceeding 2,000 people, including a gathering last Saturday, even after the Democrat governor's office wrote a letter stating the speedway's actions were an open defiance of the health restrictions. Other reports indicate that many attendees at the weekend races since late May sat and stood near each other, and few wear more masks. Now, that's not exactly the way to, to reopen the races, and I know that there's a huge pent-up demand, especially in certain parts of the country, such as in the, in the North Carolina, the Raleigh area there. But it's not the way to do things, because they, they've just flouted the governor's order, and now it looks like the track probably won't reopen at least until next season, if that. So it's not, the, not really a good way of of trying to get things going. And if you saw any of the pictures, I posted a couple of them. Uh, there were a couple on uh, on various different different things around there. If you see any of the pictures, they're, the people are basically sitting right next to each other. And it was as if the, uh, there wasn't anything going on in the world. And it's no matter what your feelings are about the, the current pandemic and the restrictions, you have to be 
at least conscious of the fact that there's something going on, and you shouldn't be that people if you if you're not if you don't deal with them on a daily basis because you never know what where they've been and and all that sort of stuff. It's just not a not a good way of doing business, not a good way of being in general right now. I uh, know it it will change and it's slowly changing, but the future you never know what the future holds. And people have to be careful. And these people were definitely not careful. Um, the, earlier, the NASCAR series is returning with the with fans in the stands this weekend as well as next weekend. And we'll see how that goes. Um, there have been other reports that I published online in the past past month or so. Might have even been longer than that. Um, but I know that the NHRA, when they uh, they issued their recent uh Schedule changes, which I published on Speedway Digest Racing News section, probably about a week or two ago. Um, they have announced that they're not going to return to racing unless it's safe for them to have fans in the in the facilities. Um, I know that there will probably be restrictions, uh, social distancing, and that sort of thing, um, decreased amount of people allowed to attend the races. But they're hoping to have it as close to normal as possible, which would be a great thing. Um, there's also other NASCAR races, such as the one being held in Watkins Glen, where they're going to increase the amount of, of people allowed there. They've got the spacing and that sort of thing there. Um, there's other tracks, the uh, the natural road courses, um, where they'll be able to, to increase the amount of people at least a little bit. But I don't think you'll see a, any full uh, racing arenas this season. Uh, there'll definitely be people who are coming back. But it's not only the the fear of the of getting sick; it's also the fact that the economy has has really taken a dive, and people don't have as much money to spend on on things like racing tickets. So it's going to be an interesting time, definitely for for racing series. Um, our previous guest mentioned the uh, the Pratt Miller Racing and the uh, the Corvette team there. I know that the the Paul Miller Racing, which is affiliated, it's related to the uh, to the Miller in that team. Uh, Paul Miller Racing is not competing at Daytona or at Sebring this year due to the uh, the COVID-19 and the fact that they've lost so much money. Um, the guy is a car dealer. Most of his dealerships are still closed, and he doesn't have the money to, to travel as much as he did before. If that's affecting a team, which has generally been a top-tier team with the Brian Sellers, who we've actually had on the program here before, as well as Madison Snow, who we've tried to have on the show, but I don't think we've ever really been successful. Um, but those guys not being able to race because of the economy, that's going to be a, a pretty bad deal for racing in general. Um, there have also been other races that have been canceled recently. Um, the schedule is so much in flux, it's kind of scary. Um, but... It's definitely been quite a time. I know here uh, we don't have as much as much stuff going on at local tracks. I don't think that Palm Beach International has actually reopened yet, um, so it's it's pretty bad. Um, what's the racing deal out there? Is there even anything going on in your part of the country yet? Um, no, not really. I know, like. In Oregon, they're trying to open up Hermiston, but of course, they have different stuff that they have to follow than Washington. In in Washington, I know Wenatchee was trying to write the governor of Washington, who's 
say, hey, we want to open up. This is stupid, which, you know, that's them, I guess. But, no, as of right now, nothing's open yet. I know when Ashley held practices, um, like last weekend or the weekend before, but as of right now, the governors aren't budging, and everything's still pretty much shut down. Yeah, that's a that's the thing that's different here. Here in in Florida, it seems like Governor DeSantis has his own his own agenda. He can he can do that. He has a reopening agenda, uh, which is somewhat tied to the administration of Washington, somewhat tied to his his own staff, and. It seems that no matter what the, the numbers of infection, whether they're going up, down, or different, he, and he's going to stick to it. And that plan will include racing at facilities, whether it's in uh, in Homestead this next week. And I don't know why we should get really, really some race. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy that they're not allowing fans for that. As I've stated before on this program, um, the idea of not having fans and grandstands in the, in the short run and in the long run is not the best thing, in my opinion, for the future of more sports. However, I have been watching a couple of those races. I haven't watched them as much as I did in the past when they did have everybody going. Uh, so it's a it's a distraction, and the ratings are showing that, especially for certain events. The one last night had a really, really good rating compared to the past. So I'm looking forward to racing on the 4th of July. It'll be awesome to see the... Uh, the events in Indianapolis, as well as the, the race there at Daytona National Speedway. Hopefully, the race at Daytona will not just be a one-off thing, but they'll actually return in the future. They have had a, uh, a July 4th event there at the Daytona National Speedway for many years. Um, and this year, the, the NASCAR schedule was going to change that, and it was moving around away from the track there in July, and the race was going to be in August, which I'm thinking it probably still will be. Um, but they, they brought in the, the IMSA racing. IMSA has a tradition, uh, the Paul Revere 250, which was held on 4th of July weekend for many, many years. They stopped in the early 2000s. So it'll be good to see them back there this year. And I think that having that event on the 4th of July in the future will be awesome. It'll be a great time of year to have a, a race. It is warm. There is some rain. But you can definitely run a uh, run a sports car event in weather conditions that aren't ideal at all for NASCAR. So in the future, that'll be great. This year, it'll be a good race. Um, I'm interested to see how many people are competing because, as I stated, there are certain teams that have that have reduced their uh, their staff, others that have just gone out of business entirely, um, in sports car especially, uh, with the Paul Miller racing, the latest announcement from uh, Porsche, where they're not going to run the, the factory effort after this season, in either the 911 or 912, the uh, the cars that are competing in the GT Le Mans series. So there's going to be a lot of changes. Um, some of them positive, some of them negative, some of them we don't know yet at all. But it'll definitely be the interesting times. And that's always something to talk about. It may not be the best thing to see. It may not be the best outcome in the future. But it'll definitely give us a lot of stuff to talk about for the next few months anyway here on Speedway Digest Thursday Night Thunder. Be sure to check out past episodes of Thursday Night Thunder as well as the other shows on the Speedway Digest Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com slash speedwaydigestradio. As I stated, I think that the other the other uh, show, the pit stop with uh, Tim Despain and Stephen Wilson, as well as Suzanne Despain on occasion, uh, will be resuming shortly. 
I don't know if they'll be back on next week or whether they're going to wait until July or wait until later in this month or something. But I know they will be back soon. So hopefully they're going to they're going to try and make it out to Talladega next weekend. So that'll be that'll be cool to see if they can do that. And so be sure to check out the uh, blogtalkradio.com slash Speedway Digest Radio for more information on that. You can also check out the show on Facebook by searching for Speedway Digest. There's Night Thunder in the search bar. I also invite you to read the articles covering all aspects of motorsports at speedwaydigest.com. I have been posting a lot of stuff, an awful lot of stuff about e-racing on speedwaydigest.com because that has been the only game in town pretty much for the past three months. We will touch on that a little bit next week especially if we aren't as successful in getting other guests as I'm hoping we will be. But we will touch on it next week a little bit more about the uh, the past few months of e-racing, and that'll be uh, something to talk about and see how well, how much the uh, world of motorsports has changed and rely, relied on e-racing for the past three months. In addition, if you're a fan of South Florida and who isn't, be sure to check out the latest news and information about our slice of paradise at my site for Board Rum's Fantastic Finds. It can be found on Facebook, Twitter, at Forborplums, as well as at PB Happening, and by heading to Forborplums Fantastic Finds.wordpress.com. That was a really depressing thing that I've had to do on Forborplums Fantastic Finds, especially in March and a little bit more in April. Um, but now there is, a, of course, a little bit more things opening up, more and more all the time. And we've covered that on the on the site as well as the uh, information about the Palm Beach Zoo reopening, which was pretty cool to get to wander around there. A little bit about Lion Country Safari, which reopened recently, and also other events and things starting to reopen, including the uh, the garden there in in West Palm Beach, the Botanical Garden. So be sure to check that out at Proportions Fantastic Finds Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next week in the Thunderdome as we discuss the major lots of issues in the world of modern auto racing. Thanks again for for joining us. We hope that this was a a great show for you. It was pretty good for us, and we look forward to sharing our views in the next few weeks about all the different stuff going on currently in the world of of auto racing. Thanks again, and have a great night.